We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So for one last time, I want to return to the election of everyone's favorite Petro booster, Jason Kenney. After he thumped the NDP, everyone knew what Jason Kenney's first order of business would be, killing the carbon tax. It was priority number one. I'm Catherine Gurkowski. I'm a journalist with Alberta Today, which is a newsletter on Alberta politics. The new government introduces the bill on May 13th, but by the time May 30th rolls around, the bill hasn't actually passed yet. But through some clever regulatory wrangling, Kenny is able to repeal the carbon tax anyways. So, of course, the UCP plans to celebrate. So what happens is about 10 a.m. we get a media notice that Jason Kenny will be fueling up his big blue pickup truck that he's had since since the campaign. He's going to go to a gas station and enjoy the, the gas savings. But there's one small little thing that's standing in the way of Jason Kenny's long-awaited photo op. Fires in northern Alberta hitting close to home as Edmontonians woke up to a thick blanket of smoke hanging over our city. At first, the smoke wasn't so bad. It even started to clear out by mid-morning. But then things became a lot more ominous. Just before noon, it got dark. The smoke rolled in. The sky was orange. Like, think Mad Max Fury Road. That's what the sky looked like. And at noon, the lights here, you know, like street lights, they came on. It was so dark that the street lights thought it was nighttime. Jason Kenny's perfect photo op, the big blue pickup truck, the gas station, none of that would work when the sky looked like a post-apocalyptic hellscape. The news conference was cancelled. So this was supposed to be Jason Kenny's victory lap. Yay, the carbon tax is dead. But in the meantime, people are fleeing their homes. There's an incredibly intense forest fire raging. Well, actually, I think there was about nine forest fires at that time raging. So just just the optics of having an extremely intense forest fire and celebrating my fueling up here truck. Optics weren't great, so they canceled the press conference. Later that day, the smoke started to creep into the Alberta legislature itself. So typically, Thursday session would wrap up around four. But before then, you could just hear, as they were trying to debate this bill, Bill 1, MLAs were coughing, you could just smell it, and so the speaker finally decided, hey, the system was trying to bring in some fresh air, the air is not so fresh, can we have a motion to adjourn? But uh, given, as you mentioned, the uh, smoke outside, some of the health risks, health risks that are being faced possibly inside this chamber, I move to adjourn. Thank you. They had to leave early because the smoke had entered the building, like even walking through the hallways of the legislature, you could see this haze. This was supposed to be a crowning moment for Jason Kenney. He'd killed the carbon tax. But no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't keep the looming climate crisis from raining ash on his parade. Just last week, former conservative finance minister Joe Oliver wrote an op-ed arguing that climate change will actually be good for Canada. 
to which I have only one response. What the fuck? That has got to be the single dumbest thing I've ever heard. Not only will climate change devastate the lives of so many Canadians, the damage has already begun. This isn't some far-off future possibility anymore. It's apocalypse now. Every type of natural disaster imaginable is already tearing through our country. Wildfires rage in the west, landslides and avalanches are taking down homes, towns are already going underwater, heat waves are killing seniors in the city, and the north is changing beyond recognition. Right now, you'll hear about Canadians from coast to coast to coast whose worlds are being changed, literally, physically, and immediately, by climate change. And about how the oil companies conspired to make sure that this is how it all worked out. As the Joe Olivers and Jason Kennys of the world keep their heads in the sand, it's everyday Canadians who are picking up the pieces and adapting to these new realities. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. Marcus Harvey is one of the Pine Box people. The only way he plans to leave his home is in a pine box. I don't know how I can describe myself. I've got a dark beard with a white chalk on my chin. I'm overweight, six feet tall, 217 pounds. I like long walks on the beach and brunette women. His home, the town of Majorville, New Brunswick, is a village that sits along the St. John River, around 700 houses in total. It's just a two-lane road beside a river going down through. Very sparsely populated. Obviously, there's only houses on one side because the river's on the other. A beautiful place. Like, you sit on my front porch, I mean, you can sit there and, and the river's a kilometer wide. With the river can come floods. 1973 was the big one, the flood of the century, the one everyone talked about. But in 2018, that changed. Today, the floodwaters in and around St. John smashed the record set back in 1973, and they still haven't peaked. We're expecting heavy rain in the area tonight. So the worst is yet to come, and not just flooding. Power, water, and sewage services could all be knocked out. Majorville is one of the many places in Canada where climate change has completely changed everyone's way of life. And it's up to people like Marcus to figure out how to cope. But like I said, Marcus, he's a pine boxer, so he's stuck around. And besides, he's pretty much the unofficial mayor of Majorville, so Marcus and his buddies Jason Moxon and Silent Steve made sure everything was taken care of while the town was underwater. Jason Moxon is a farmer down the road. He is really the backbone of the work during a flood. He's an absolute beast. If you were to paint him green, he'd be the Hulk. Strongest man I know and would help anybody. Silent Steve is Steve Harvey. He's up the road from me. He lives on Portobello Drive up high, so he's never in the water, but he's got family downriver from here. The reason why his name is Silent Steve is because he hangs out with the farmer down the road, Jason Moxon. So you have Jay and Silent Bob, while I have Jay and Silent Steve. Together, the three of them form a pretty formidable flood-fighting trio. Here's what a typical day looked like for them in 2018. I would get up in the morning, fire up the generator, update the Facebook page, I would update where the water level was for people that weren't here and for the people that are here. Then around noontime, the boys would come down with the boat, Jason and Silent Steve. We'd probably throw down three, four, five, six beers, and then uh, we'd head out and do our chores down the road. A bunch of cows are stuck in a nearby hill, so they've got to be dealt with first. We'd have to go down, throw a bale of hay out for each cow, then down further, checking on Mr. Arbo down the road, make sure he's fine. 
down further to Jason's house at the farm, the country pumpkin, to feed some cats for his girlfriend. We did down. We did, did a couple of evacuations, you know, lifting people's freezers, um, taking stuff out of people's basements, fixing a sump pump for somebody who's their, their sump pump is, is conked out. And, and then, you know, you come back at night, fire up the barbecue, have something to eat, drink a few more beers, go to bed, get up, rinse, repeat, same thing the next day. It's just another normal day in this underwater town. Everyday chores are done by boat while dodging strange objects in the water. I've looked out on the river and, you know, you see a hot tub floating down the river. You see a raft. You see somebody's stairs. You know, we were out in the boat this year, actually, down the road for me. And there was a brand new set of stairs from the local church that was just floating in the middle of the road that we, you know, pulled up at the boat, tied it off. Just another one of the day's chores. So many weird, wacky things. But it's not only the Good Samaritans like Marcus who have to get creative in this brave new world. So do the troublemakers. Take what happened to Marcus one fine morning in 2018. It was on a Sunday, May the 6th. It was the highest point of the flood. I was in bed. It was about 5 o'clock in the morning. And as I was laying in bed, I just felt, I heard something. Something woke me up, and I opened my eyes, and I saw a flashlight coming up the stairs. My bedroom's on the second floor. So I just, yeah, I yelled out, hello, because I didn't know, you know, you come out of a sleep, you, you don't know what's going on. I didn't know if it was Jason or Silent Steve or something had happened. And a voice just yelled out, you need to evacuate. So I jumped out of bed, and it was light enough that I could look across the road and see the water level hadn't changed from where it was. If the water wasn't worse than yesterday, why did he have to evacuate? Marcus picked up pretty quickly that something wasn't right. So I yelled back, why the blank do I have to evacuate? And heard the, you know, heard the running out of the back door. So I, my first instinct was to at least get a hold of one of them so that I could take care of that. Just to let you know, Marcus is the last man you'd want to try to rob. The guy is fearless. But uh, they made it out the back door. I've got a 40 by 40 pool deck on the back of my house, so I ran onto the pool deck because I could hear them running in behind. Jumped up and looked over, and there was three masked guys getting into a red canoe. Three masked men had been canoeing around Majorville, robbing the houses of people who had evacuated. And luckily, I was able to run back in the house, and they hadn't stolen my camera. I'm an amateur photographer as well, so I got my camera out and was able to snap a, a now fairly famous photo from that flood. The great canoe robbery spree of 2018 didn't work out so well for the three men. They found the guys. They were caught in a uh, whirlpool beside a uh, sod farm just down the road and, and actually waved to boats going by to try to come and rescue them because they couldn't get out and they were very wet and very cold. All of this had become kind of normal for Marcus. The floods that happen every spring keep getting worse, and they have to find ways to adapt. But sometimes it takes an outside eye to really get a sense of how weird this all is. Brendan Kennedy is an investigative reporter for the Toronto Star, and when he wanted to get a sense of how the flooding was affecting New Brunswick, he knew exactly where he had to go. wanted to get to Majorville because I, I knew what it was like there and if I'm going to tell a story about flooding in New Brunswick I got to get to Majorville but the roads were closed and I didn't know how I was going to do it and I was asking people and eventually I heard from a, a guy named Marcus Harvey who was my main contact in Majorville. 
Marcus is this really gregarious character, a big guy who has this huge beard with this shock of white hair down the middle. And, you know, he, he would always refer to me as Upper Canada. You know, we got a reporter from Upper Canada, and then Upper Canada, can you give me a hand with this fridge? Upper Canada, can you get yourself out of the water there and get in the boat? He came and he's like, okay, well, can I drive down? I'm like, nope. We're an island now. I said, but if you bring a 2-4 moose light, Silent Steve will pick you up. He was like, Silent Steve can give you a ride to town in his boat. I don't know who Silent Steve is, but this is how he was introduced to me. He's like, but you got to give him a, a case of 24 Moosehead Light. That's the deal. And I said, I, I can make that happen. Went to the beer store, got what I needed, showed up at the agreed-upon spot <laughs> where I was uh, picked up first in a tractor that waded through some of the water, and then Silent Steve met me. I delivered my 24 Moosehead Light, and uh, he kept up his end of the bargain and gave me a ride through town in his fishing boat. The kid came with us, and he went to all the stops with us and, and helped and worked. I was spending a lot of time with them, and like anything, you start to get used to it, and, and we're like going from house to house, like lifting deep freezes off the ground and cleaning some places out and that kind of stuff. We were down at actually Jason Moxon's house, which is a couple of kilometers down the road from me. We went into his house. His house didn't have water in it, but the garage did, and we lifted up a sleigh and whatnot, and we came out of the house, I mean, absolutely, completely surrounded by water. I remember at one point I was standing on a porch in one place and I sort of just like looked out over everything and we're just surrounded by by water but you can see people's houses you can see mailboxes like roadside mailboxes poking out of the water you know highway signs that are are half covered all there was was like a, a six by six patio stone that we could stand on and the boat's right up against that and I think I just turned to him and said and I, I think I said like this is kind of fucked though and they both laughed. <laughs> and uh, kind of looked out and he said, this is kind of fucked. <laughs> like anything, you sort of adapt to, or you can adapt in a, in a place, and it starts to become normalized. But I did have this moment when I'm like, we are driving down the highway in a boat. He'd been on the boat with us. We boated down the middle of the road, all the way down there, but just it kind of hit him at that moment when we came out of the house, and he just, he just wow. You know, you take a second to look around and like, this doesn't make sense, you know, to have this community that is completely inundated and where water is reaching up halfway to people's front doors and, and that kind of thing. Today, everyone acknowledges that the floods are indeed getting worse and worse. There's an aspect of flooding that has been a fact of life in Majorville for a long time, but it's the frequency and the severity that is, is really changing. The good flood data only goes back to 1962, but from 1962 to 2004, there were you know three significant floods, and since then there's been eight. And while the residents of Majorville disagree about what's causing the increase, the science is pretty clear climate change that's caused by humans and human activity is leading to more frequent and more severe floods. And that's something that's, that's true across Canada. Marcus and Jason and Silent Steve are just so incredibly good-natured and adaptable that coming from them, things don't actually sound so bad. But for other residents, the annual flooding can be devastating. People like Marcus and Steve, like I said, they take a kind of adventurous spirit about it and, and take pride in kind of weathering it. But, you know, I think for other people, 
just the toll of, of the financial cost with property damage and also just like the stress of knowing that the flood's coming and not necessarily knowing how long it's going to last for and what that means for getting to work or being able to be, if you have any kind of medical conditions, being able to be evacuated in time. You know, all that stuff puts stress on people. For Brendan, it was strange to see climate change in action in person. When you read about it in a study about what's going to happen in 2050 or 2100, it can be hard to wrap your mind around, as opposed to when you see it with your own eyes, these are the effects happening right now, and these are the people living with it, and this is the cost. You know, I mean, it's, you, you can't really deny it. And for Marcus and all the other people living next to the St. John River, this is now just their lives. I think this may be the new normal. I don't want to say it out loud, but yeah, it may definitely be our, our new reality. It's not just Majorville, New Brunswick, where this kind of thing is happening. Every single part of the country is feeling the effects of the climate crisis right now. And there's nowhere that's more true than in northern Alberta. Catherine Gurkowski, who you heard at the top of the show, can see it when she looks up at the sky. When it's not raining, it's been too smoky to go outside. I really don't remember summers and smoke being this bad. There's been days I can't take my daughter out to play. And it was only three years ago that Fort McMurray suffered the costliest natural disaster in Canadian history. It's chaos, really. You hear the emergency sirens going, but I need to show you, it's not just on the border. This is Fort McMurray burning this afternoon, Donna. Uh, we're right in the thick of it. This is Highway 63, the main corridor, and we're in downtown. We're not far from a fire station, to be honest, and the hospital. When you listen to reports from the time, it sounds absolutely unreal. This is Callahan Sheffer, a Fort McMurray resident who was trapped on a bus while the fire started to cut across the highway out of town. While we were sitting there and not moving in traffic, we're just all on a standstill. We, uh, the flames, you could start seeing ash starting to hit the side of the bus, like landing in front. And then all of a sudden, the grass in between the two highways was catching on fire. The flames got so close that they were touching the bus. The front of the bus ended up exploding and everyone inside ran out. But luckily, they all made it out of Fort Mac alive. Wildfires have always been a fact of life in the West, but climate change is making them even more destructive. The same is true for landslides in British Columbia. Atmospheric rivers carrying immense amounts of water vapor are hitting the Pacific coast and drenching the land. One of those atmospheric rivers hit Pemberton, B.C. in 2015. Heavy rain has triggered several mudslides, washing out roads and prompting evacuation orders near Pemberton and Squamish. Rob and Aaron Elliott lived in the area with their young son. They fled right before an avalanche of mud crashed into their home. It was completely demolished to the point where you could only see the second story of the place poking out of the dirt. They lost almost everything, including decades of family photos. But there was one saving grace. While he was rummaging through the rubble, Rob found something. Here he is speaking to Global News at the time. Suddenly, out of that, we found one of these books, and suddenly that gave buoyancy to the whole experience. It was a copy of Goodnight Moon, which included a recording of Aaron's mother. 
It's the only recording my wife has of her mom who passed away of cancer a, a year and a half ago, so that means a lot. Luckily, no one was killed during that landslide, but that can't be said for what happened in Montreal last summer. A heat wave killed dozens of people, most of them seniors. Maurice Richard fears he was almost one of them. He was moving out of his home in transitional housing when he collapsed outside. Luckily, staff members found him in time. And they saw the color, that's what they told me. They said, oh, you don't look good. And that's when they told me, no, sit down. Just knowing that could have happened to me, you know. And, uh, and it, I think it's very hard to, especially uh, people like me that don't have family. or And I think those are the unfortunate that probably passed away. In Atlantic Canada, entire ways of life are changing. For lobster fishermen in Nova Scotia, this is actually a boom time. A recent run of mild, calm weather and warmer waters mean more lobsters could end up in a hot pot. The warming waters means there's more lobster than ever around the Maritimes, minting a new generation of wealthy lobstermen. But the good times might not last. The oceans are becoming more acidic, and we really don't know what that will mean for these noble ocean insects. For the hunters of northern Labrador, melting ice means many people can only reach their trap lines a few months of the year. Here's Derek Paul in Regalt, the most southerly Inuit community in Canada. A month is a lot, like you're losing two months off of each season that, that you're preventing from either going trapping. The three of us here are commercial trappers and we can't get to our trap lines. All three of our trap lines are on, over on the other side of the bay. So we can't get to our trap lines until the middle of January because the ice is not formed. To be out on the land, it, you know, it's our identity as Inuit people. It's uh, our connection is who we are, is where we come from. It brings us back to where our forefathers and the people before us came. And further north in Nunavut, where everything is built on a layer of permafrost, homes are collapsing in on themselves as the ground shifts beneath them. And people who live near the water, like Sandy Adams and Tuck, they will soon have to leave their homes entirely. I fear that my house can fall into the ocean. I guess they got to move me. Got to move me where I don't want to go, but can be helped. I'm used to living in the point. <laughs> and the, the cool air come from the ocean when it's summertime and you don't get as much bugs as inland. And, and it's better out here. And then there's Prince Edward Island, which is made entirely of soft sandstone that's easily washed away. The province is literally shrinking every year. Lennox Island in PEI is estimated to shrink in half in the next 50 years. Gilbert Sark grew up there. Lennox Island, it's my home. This is uh, where I grew up. It means everything to me. Honestly, uh, I worry about Lennox Island not being here. <laughs> I'd say in my sons and my daughters, maybe in my grandkids' generation, There'd be no Lennox Island, you know. It'd be eroded away if something's not done. What the residents of Lennox worry about most is the graveyard. So they've tried to shore up the water line, though they know it's only a temporary fix. When I come to Mom's grave, it's, I don't know, I get emotional, you know. A lot of my family's in here, actually. When I was younger, we used to make jokes that sooner or later, while we're swimming down at the wharf, we're going to be swimming with some of the caskets that are going to fall out because of the way it's eroded. 
So yeah, it was, uh, it's a little scary. Danny Tuplin, another Lennox Island resident, has a message for the rest of Canada when it comes to the climate crisis. Well, it's going to come to you soon enough. <laughs> it's, it's not only here. It's globally. So yeah, open your eyes. It's coming to a station near you someday, sooner or later. When I started on this, I actually thought it was going to be a problem for, like, our grandchildren. And now I'm sort of seeing all these impacts happening, the wildfires, the flooding. It is kind of devastating some days to wake up and see, you know, people fleeing fires and thinking, you know, this is the kind of thing we said would happen, and it's happening, and we didn't stop it. My name's Keith Stewart. I'm a senior energy strategist with Greenpeace Canada. I've been working on climate change policy and advocacy since the late 90s. So I'm an expert in losing. All of this devastation being wrought by the changing climate will only intensify. And while the climate catastrophe is a global problem, what Canada decides to do will matter a lot. We are in the top 10 for total emissions among countries per capita. We're one of the largest oil exporters. You know, we actually have a big role to play here. And in this country, Upstream oil and gas, producing oil and gas, is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions and the fastest rising. It's more than all of the tailpipes. It's more than all of the electricity sector, more than all buildings. That's our biggest problem. And until we're willing to address that, we're not going to be able to make serious progress on decarbonization in this country. And there's one thing that's really standing in our way. The key barrier in Canada is the institutional power of the oil industry. And until we face up to that fact, we're going to end up with these half measures at best. If you've been listening to this series, you have a pretty good sense of how powerful the oil industry is in this country. You know that these companies can shape our politics, seize control over their own regulations, evade responsibility when things go wrong, and even get the police and the spies to do their bidding. And if it wasn't for the power of the oil industry, things could have looked very different today. In the late 1990s, I was going to a lot of multi-stakeholder working groups where you'd have industry and environmentalists and sort of other groups sort of sitting around a table trying to come up with policy. And the thing we quickly ran into was this strong resistance from particularly the oil industry because they're very powerful in Canada, much more so than coal, whereas coal was the main barrier in the U.S. And one of the really fascinating things was they borrowed a lot of their strategies from the tobacco industry. And in many cases... The experts who were saying, you know, climate change isn't a problem were the same ones who had previously said, you know, tobacco can't hurt you. I don't think we can underestimate how important that lobby was coming out of these industries for delaying action. Because this is Commons, here's one last conspiracy for you. In the 1990s, Canadian oil companies were telling the world that the science around climate change wasn't settled. Here's a quote from the Imperial Review in 1998, a magazine put out by Imperial Oil. One thing is clear in this debate. There is absolutely no agreement among climatologists on whether or not the planet is getting warmer, or, if it is, on whether the warming is the result of man-made factors or natural variations in the climate. Not only was that not true, Imperial Oil was blatantly lying. Just a few years earlier, Imperial Oil was looking at expanding their operations in the Arctic. When they were planning for developing the oil and gas in the Canadian Arctic, 
They were doing that on the assumption that the ice would be melting and the permafrost would be melting. So how do we, you know, build a pipeline on the grounds expecting the permafrost to melt during the time that the oil pipeline is going to be there? An imperial oil engineer concluded that potential global warming can only lower exploration and development costs. So at the same time that they were spreading lies about climate change, Imperial Oil was incorporating climate data into its future plans. Off the shore of Nova Scotia, it was the same story. Because at the very same time, Imperial Oil was in a joint project with what was then Mobile Oil, later bought by Exxon. They were designing an offshore platform for drilling in, in the Atlantic, and they actually changed the design to build it higher because they expected, over the 50 years the thing was going to be in the water, they expected sea levels to rise and to have more and stronger storms. At the same time they were spreading lies about climate change, Imperial Oil was using climate projections in its future plans. Now, Imperial Oil says that accounting for risks, likely or unlikely, is just part of their day-to-day practices. But it was the oil companies that knew about the dangers of climate change well before the public or lawmakers. Canada, it's the country where the global oil industry began. Now, 150 years later, whether we like it or not, it's up to all of us to handle the wreckage. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode was built on reporting by Catherine Gurkowski at Alberta Today, Brendan Kennedy, Marco Oved, Ainsley Cruikshank, Haley Ryan, and Kenyon Wallace at the Toronto Star, Susan Ormiston, Nick Purden, and Sabrina Fabian at CBC News, Sarah Jerving, Katie Jennings, Masako Melissa, Susan Rust, and Amy Lieberman at the LA Times, and Reed Feist at Global News. A huge inspiration for this episode was the Toronto Star's recent series on climate change called Undeniable. There is so much we couldn't fit in here, so please go check it out. It's truly incredible reporting. And this is actually the final episode in our series on Crude. Thank you so much to all the listeners who have been here on this journey with us. We appreciate you all enormously. We're taking an episode off, but we'll be back in a month with a brand new season of Commons, so stay tuned. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Canadaland Commons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash canadaland.